History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge to find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. I'm Pete Goddard. I'm here in the History Happened Everywhere studio with that beautiful, tall, handsome man, Ryan Weir. Hello, everyone. How are you doing, Ryan? Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you too, and sir. And Happy New Year to everyone else. So last episode, the Dursalator threw up the country of Azerbaijan, the time period of 700 to 800 CE, and the topic of metal. So, Ryan, first country of the new year, yeah. starting with an A, appropriately enough. <laughs> yeah, How's it gone? Well, it was more challenging than I expected. Uh, the tale that I'm going to tell you, though, is one that sweeps across history. It's an epic tale. <laughs> <laughs> Where empires rise and empires fall. Exciting. We're going to discover the power of commerce through the tale of two currencies. And we're going to cross mountains and we're going to cross swords. And you know what, Pete? You're going to learn why it's important. Not to lose your head during battle. Ooh. I'm intrigued, exciting, and very much looking forward to today's episode of History Happened Everywhere. Horses, tea, fire, mountains, oil, the world's largest flag, politics, fancy buildings, mud volcanoes and war welcome to the land of fire Ooh, i'm excited (laughs) that sounded like an excellent weekend this (laughs) (laughs) this is the republic of azerbaijan yeah find the mediterranean yep yeah you're gonna follow it to the right okay okay you've got turkey right there you're gonna keep going just slightly across the land there you've got armenia and then next to that boom azerbaijan got it you've got russia and georgia to the north and to the south you've got iran um so it's sort of squidged right in and amongst a lot of big players quite a bridging place as well absolutely yeah it's one of three independent states in what is known as eastern transcaucasia which is a great name and sounds a bit like transylvania (laughs) Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, those constitute Eastern Transcaucasia. It's named after the Caucasus Mountains, which runs east to west between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And it divides them, Georgia to the north of the mountains, and Azerbaijan and Armenia to the south of the mountains. So the border between Europe and Asia is right on that line of the Caucasus Mountains. So part of North Azerbaijan actually falls into the boundaries of Europe. So it's technically half in Europe and half in Asia. Intercontinental country. Intercontinental country, yeah. And in fact, this allowed Azerbaijan uh, to enter and win the Eurovision Song Contest in 2011 with the song Running Scared by Ellen Nicky. Anyway, 
So Azerbaijan is not as big as I thought it would be. I, when I think of Azerbaijan, I think of like Kazakhstan and I think of some of these other really big, vast uh, You sort of imagine areas. these big steppe countries, don't you? Exactly. The broad plains and whatnot. Quite. But Azerbaijan's not quite the same. It's only 86,000 square kilometres, which is six Azerbaijans to a France. Wow. Right? So really that's quite really big. quite tiny, yeah, isn't it? France is 537% larger. Wow. That's, that, that, that surprises me as well. I always kind of right. think everything over there is massive. <laughs> Huge, big, vast, sort of like sweeping plains and things. Not the case here. Geographically, in fact, Azerbaijan is mountainous, especially in the north where the Caucasus Mountains ranges. In terms of weather, you've got a cold jet stream that flies right over Azerbaijan and it meets the warm air from the Caspian Sea. And that creates a country which has basically got snow covered like alpine mountains right next to dry subtropical desert zones yeah super weird so you've got like a whole range of stuff all within that tiny little area tomorrow to the beach to the beach exactly yeah azerbaijan has been occupied by many different empires over the millennia some of which we're going to be talking about later with contemporary azerbaijan only becoming independent after the collapse of the soviet union so really relatively quite recently the country today is divided into nine regions, one of which, Nakhchivan, is an autonomous republic, an area of a country that doesn't sit with the rest of the country, so it sits outside in another area entirely, um, so physically separate from the main body of the country. And in fact, if you wanted to get from Nakhchivan to the rest of Azerbaijan, it would be a nine-hour car journey through Iran to get there. Wow. Side note, Nakhchivan is also said to be the place where Noah's family lived after the flood. Noah the Nakhchivanian. Noah the Nakhchivanian, as he was known. <laughs> Famously. <laughs> yeah. Baku is the capital city, famous for its wild architecture. And I say wild because it's a bit like um, Dubai in that it's built really dramatic buildings. Um, Baku has also, and you'll love this, Pete, the world's largest KFC restaurant. Oh, fantastic. Imagine the buckets coming out <laughs> through a, hatches as far as the eye can see. <laughs> So much chicken. (laughs) Uh, Today, Azerbaijan has a population of 9 million people. But, fun fact, there are more Azeri in Iran than there are in Azerbaijan. Sorry, what's an Azeri? It's just the name for the people. Oh, right. Oh, Azeris. Azeris. You wouldn't say Azerbaijanis. That's what I would have said. So (laughs) thank you for the pre-correction. Okay. So yes, when the Russian Empire occupied Azerbaijan and indeed the rest of Transcaucasia in the 19th century, a lot of the Azeri were forced to flee and they went south to Iran just across the border. And today, 14 million Iranians claim to be Azeri descent. Wow. Uh, Keeping the language and even having their own TV stations in the Azeri language. How about that? That's remarkable. That's five million more people I mean, if than they in all, the homeland. If they all went home suddenly, that would be a big squeeze, wouldn't it? <laughs> it certainly would, yeah. 97% Muslim, and they have high rates of literacy and low rates of unemployment. Great. But I'm going to caveat that <laughs> because corruption seems to be pretty high in uh, the Azerbaijan government. It's ranked 129th worst among 180 countries. Wow, that's not a yeah, great ranking. A, a good example of that being that the results of the 2013 presidential elections were leaked onto the internet before anyone even cast a vote. <laughs> oh dear, the results that doesn't fill you with confidence, does it? The script, <laughs> the script, the script writers have come up with this. <laughs> Last minute shock result. (laughs) Azerbaijan facts. Oh, thank goodness. Always my favourite bit. Okay, called the land of fire. Why is that? 
Well, it's due to the natural gases, which just constantly keep seeping out of the ground and feeding flames. So, hence, the land of fire is true. It's so in my head, I've fire. got a kind of Tolkien-esque hellscape of exactly. walking along and then gouts of fire come bursting up the earth. You are not wrong. There is a mountain called Yanar Dag, which means the burning mountain, and it is a natural glowing fire which has been burning on a hillside for 65 years. Wow. In fact, this is nothing new. Uh, Marco Polo, the explorer, he uh, even commented on these in, in his writings. You, imagine being Marco Polo and you travelling around, and I've seen some things in my time. I've right. seen hills and trees. Imagine the first time you see fire leaping forth from the ground, yeah. apparently at random. And at night as well. <laughs> That's been incredible mean, Telling that story to people would just Go. absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Talking of gas, there are extraordinary levels of gas and oil across the whole of Azerbaijan. In 2013, Azerbaijan produced 2 trillion 900 billion litres of gas, which is enough to fill one and a half million hot air balloons. Wow. Is that how they transport it? Yeah. Millions and millions of hot air balloons. (laughs) I was thinking, what is it? I could measure that in. And I thought hot air balloons. (laughs) I thought that's a good image. Anyway, the first oil well was drilled in Azerbaijan in 1847. That's three years before in the United States. Wow. Azerbaijan lies over such reserves of oil and natural gas that 95% of its GDP comes from oil. Wow. That's a lot. And as a result of that, Azerbaijan has the highest concentration of volcanoes in the world. 350 volcanoes in that small space we were talking about, a sixth the size of France. But these aren't volcanoes in the way that you're probably thinking. These are formed on top of the gas reserves. And instead of lava, they spew out this muddy mixture of water and sand and gas and oil. That sounds horrible, but profitable. In 1949, an oil rig called the Neft Daslari started to add a few like elevated walkways across the water so that the workers could get from place to place a bit quicker. And uh, since 1949, that has grown. They've added more and more of these walkways such that Neft Daslari is now considered an entire city on stilts over the water. And you can go there. There are stores there. You can go to the hotel, stay in a hotel. They've got barbers there. It's, It's its own city on water. You are basically describing an interesting sci-fi world to me. Yes, <laughs> I was thinking water world. This is great. Isn't it? It sounds amazing, this place. Now, oil. Pete, I know you like to take care of yourself. I do. Right? Well, <laughs> you might want to treat yourself. Head down to the town of Naftalan. 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 Wouldn't miss it. Yeah. And there you can visit a spa. And there in the spa, you can bathe in crude oil. That feels like a sort of... <laughs> second tier that you know when you stand on the bed and you throw the money everywhere and you writhe around in money oh okay that sounds like a, a secondary version of that <laughs> it does sound like you're in some sort of despot yeah but it's not regular oil you know it's not, you, you wouldn't put it in your car for instance but it's not far from it it's still crude oil and your bath can only be 10 minutes before you risk death Oh, I see. Well, that's uh, an exciting proposition. Yeah. Didn't the evil man in the film Dune bathe in effectively crude oil? Certainly appears. I'm sure that's where they got it from. <laughs> uh, yeah. So your bath is short. And in fact, you actually spend longer scrubbing it off than you do actually bathing in it and relaxing. Um, I think I'm going to give it a miss. I don't want to look like a guillemot who's been in a, a tanker accident. <laughs> well, I mean, you're missing out then because it is claimed by these spas that the oil cures everything. Ah. From eczema to... Poverty. Impotence. <laughs> oh, to impotence. Just saying. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll get maybe some we'll four-star on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, the main component of it is still uh, naphthalene, uh, which is considered a carcinogenic. So yeah, no longer than 10 minutes. But after your lovely, refreshing crude oil bath, <laughs> you might want a, a nice cup of tea. You like tea? Has it got oil in it? It's not got oil. <laughs> <laughs> You've made me suspicious with the first spa offering that you gave me. <laughs> it's not oil, but if you wanted sugar in your tea, they would scoff at you. Oh, because idiots. you don't have sugar in your tea in Azerbaijan, you have jam. One jam. or two teaspoons of jam in your tea. In your tea. That's remarkable. And um, by jam, I guess we mean jelly for our American listeners. Yes. Mm. Does it dissolve? I don't know. Yeah, it's sugar. It dissolves. It's just sugar, isn't it? Okay, some Azerbaijan proverbs that I particularly like. These ones stood out to me. Pete, cheap meat never makes a good soup. What do you think about that? I thought that soup was all about just getting rid of your cheap meat. But okay, these guys are connoisseurs of soup, clearly. Next one. Politeness is not sold in the bazaar. Oh. I like that one. They're all business, these guys. And of course, our favourite part of every episode, the national anthem. Love it. All right. I'm expecting something martial and uplifting. Well, it's called the March of Azerbaijan. Ah. So, yeah, you'd think so. This was just a little background to it. Uh, this was uh, the winning entry in a competition run by the, the, the state as it was at the time. Uh, the composer won 15,000 rubles for his entry, mm. which is quite good. That was $600 worth at the time, nice. uh, which is about $10,000 today. Worth having. Well, let's see whether or not we like it or not. I'm expecting a lot of cymbal crashes. You sure this isn't a 70s cop show? <laughs> and into the north. Okay, right. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great start, though, wasn't it? That was terrific. That was that really wrong-footed me. Mm. How do... How, I can't imagine the competition had lots of entries that sounded hugely different to this. bit more upbeat than the Bulgarian and the Soviet efforts. So it's not sad, is it? Yeah, it's a bit more oomph. There you go. That was March of Azerbaijan. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. Oh, it's lovely and warm in here. Yeah, yeah, I just had this new underfloor heating installed. I imported it, especially from Azerbaijan. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The heat just erupts out of the floor. See? Wow, that is a lovely flame effect. Effect? No, 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 that's real flames. Wait, what? Ah, my eyebrows! Oh, are they singed? Yeah, that will happen. You have to keep, like, moving around because you don't know where it's coming up next. <laughs> Super authentic. Oh, this all seems pretty dangerous. Well, you know, it's inspired by the Azeri landscape and, and you know, they're fine with it. Oh my God, I'm on fire! Don't panic. Look, we all struggle with new technology. Just, just smother it out. Ryan, this is madness. It's a health and safety nightmare. Gosh, surely there's some regulation against this insanity. I mean, it's funny, because that is exactly what the plumber said when he was installing the crude oil shower. Do you want to know some history? 
I would love to hear some history. Okay, let's crack on into the history. Two million years ago. (laughs) (laughs) The very good place to start. (laughs) Early man. Early man. Early man. Love that guy. (laughs) Uh, Nobody knows who they were, but we know that they did live there. And in fact, specifically in the Azur Caves in Western Azerbaijan, there are signs of human life that goes back 700,000 years ago. That's pretty tasty. Yeah. And 300,000 year old actual remains have been found, a jawbone specifically with a little molar in it. It's often a jawbone they seem to find. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's the least tasty part for any scavenging animal. <laughs> <laughs> so let's bring it a little bit closer to home. Uh, so 10,000 years ago. Oh, right, that's a leap. Azerbaijan is now home to two peoples. You've got the Caucasian Albanians. That's a reference to the Caucasus region, not to do with skin colour, although that is where the term originates from. But also, Caucasian Albania shouldn't be confused with modern Albania, which is in the Balkans, and is a completely different country entirely. It's just, as far as I can tell, two entirely different geographical It's often regions. because of migrating tribes, isn't it? You get a group that moves from A to B and then just takes the name in different places. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't find a reason why it, it, it appears to have no historical or geographical connection. Um, right. They just are called Albania. So there you go. And then the second group is the Scythians. Scythians. Oh, they yeah. sound exciting. They sound a little bit evil. Well, Scythian. you're thinking of Slytherin, right? Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah, from Harry Potter. So this is a nomadic Iranian people, and they end up owning a huge part of the world. 4,000 years ago, there is an Iranian people called the Medes, which take over. Then another Iranian people called the Archimenid Persians, they take over, and they own like a pretty large slice of the world at this point, and they divide their territory into what they consider like local governments. So they sort of manage their own parts of their empire. And uh, the area where Azerbaijan is today was called Atrapatani, meaning land of fire, named after Atorpat, who was friends with Alexander the Great. 240 BCE, so 2,000 years ago, there are thereabouts. Another Iranian people step into the area. There's a, and... there's a distinct direction of travel here, isn't there? <laughs> there is. There's just these Iranians coming north. And these guys are called the Parthians, and they take over. And the Parthian Empire is pretty significant. They rise to power under the king Mithridates the Great, and they occupy all of sort of modern Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, and for brief periods, territories in Pakistan, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and Palestine. Solid empire. But they are betrayed, and they're betrayed by another country that was supposedly allegiant to them. And these guys are called the Sassanids. Sassanids. Yeah. And they're in another Iranian people. <laughs> they <laughs> should so, try going north. <laughs> and so the, the, the Sassanids take over, and they, they rule for a long time. Four centuries, in fact. 400 years. Until in the 600s, Islam arrives. Ah. So, 632, the Prophet Muhammad has died. There is a debate over who should replace him, and Abu Bakr is voted in to succeed Muhammad, and he becomes the ruler of the Caliphate, which is the word that's used to describe the Islamic community. I never really thought of him as having a successor. I always thought he was just Muhammad. He does his pronouncements and then he stops being Muhammad and normal people take over, I guess. (laughs) Well, that's kind of what happens. So known as the Caliph, Abu Bakr sorts out some infighting amongst the clans who are sort of a bit on, some of them are unhappy that he's in charge, but he sorts all that out and then he initiates these military campaigns uh, to bring Arabia under Islam. He just wants to bring everyone together and that's it. The Muslim conquest is underway. So caliphs come and go. 
until in 661, 30 years later, the caliphate is now under the rule of the Umayyad dynasty. The Umayyad continue this trend for conquest. They are ruling over, at this point, the largest territorial empire in history. This includes Transoxiana, which is modern-day Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan, parts of Pakistan, the Maghreb, which is north coast of Africa, the Iberian Peninsula, which includes Spain, Portugal, Gibraltar, Andorra. It's basically a total of 4.3 million square miles of land. It's a lot of France's. 20 times the size of France. <laughs> Around 62 million people fall within that territory which is 30% of all people on earth. Wow, that's amazing. It is an enormous empire that the that the Umayyad are in, are in charge of. But there is a gap. There's a gap on the map. And, uh, <laughs> they don't like that, I'm sure. <laughs> and the Umayyad want it. And this is Transcaucasia. Oh, is that because it's so fiery and welcoming? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And so Transcaucasia, as a reminder, is Armenia, Albania, and Azerbaijan. And they want the territory because it's rich in resources, and they're all key parts of the Silk Road. So at this time, the capital city of Bada is considered the world's greatest trading centre on the Silk Road. At the time, it is it's sort of like considered the greatest centre for arts and crafts. So there's lots of like material products that are being produced, plates and decorative vases and that sort of stuff, all made of, of every material, including metal. And this continues right up until the 10th century, when the neighbouring city of Ganja took over, which makes you wonder <laughs> what they were selling. <laughs> took them a while to get going because they uh, <laughs> lost track of things for a while there. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so the crafts there are offering foreign merchants, people, guys coming along the, the Silk Road, this huge variety of like super useful goods and products. So you've got silk, obviously, on the Silk Road. Uh, you've got oil, obviously. Honestly, we bathe in it here. So. <laughs> salt, wool, cotton, dyes, medicines, carpets, musical instruments, and so on. But there is this special trade in metal too, like jewellery, weaponry, mercury, gold, silver, iron, copper, all of these things are just flowing in and out of Azerbaijan. And these come in different sizes and shapes, right, from just the natural ore itself, just a rock, you know, right Found down rock. to... I think it's got something in it. It's got gold in it. <laughs> to dishes and trays and candlesticks and weapons and even astronomical devices from this period are, being, yeah, are being sold. And so these resources being traded in Azerbaijan are attractive to the Umayyad for science purposes as well. Like, they, they, you know, they want to get their hands on specific types of uh, metals or products. Azerbaijan is the place to go. It's the market. And alchemy for the Umayyad was a huge focus. It was, like medicine and astrology, one of the key sciences for them. And it received a lot of attention from the caliphate and from the caliph himself. Basically, finding the means of turning like a base metal into gold was being sought because as an empire, you can get more gold if you've got access to all these base materials, you can get richer and richer. In fact, one Umayyad noble is said to have reported to the caliph how he had witnessed the transmutation of lead and copper into silver and gold just by the means of a dry powder. Wow. Yeah. Heck of a powder. Of course, they hadn't been introduced to the idea of inflation at this point. <laughs> yes, very true. So if you make too much of it, it loses its value. Yeah. <laughs> and so medieval Azerbaijan was sort of key to trade relations too, right? Uh, you've got people coming from all over the world 
world from Indians, Africans, Russians, Asians, Europeans. They're all coming to this one specific place. So as you said at the start, it's a kind of bridging crossroads of a place. That's exactly right. Yeah. And the Caliphate knew that that international trade means, uh, you know, it's it's going to be important to their expansion. Good for networking and um, building up those business connections that help perhaps later when you just take over their land. Ancient LinkedIn. Ancient <laughs> So the Umayyad want the whole region, but there's a problem. There are two empires that already lay claim to this region. You've got the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine, and you've also got the Persian Sassanian Empire. So the Caliph didn't want to waste time with diplomacy because, well, that takes time. So he sets to just attacking them both. And he defeats the Byzantines and then heads straight into Azerbaijan in a city called Adabil and he smashes the Sassanids too. Wow. Just that's a statement. Clears them all out <laughs> straight away. Much of the credit for this is due to the introduction of new weaponry. So uh, the Umayyad had been to India and bought new swords. And these swords were made of Damascene steel. And you'll probably know them by the name scimitar. Oh, yes. Yeah, and that's what the Arabs called them. And these were a new form of crucible steel, uh, like an, an, an alloy, the you know different metals that are mixed together that create a blade which is much sharper, uh, much thinner, more flexible, and ultimately gave the Muslim sort of the edge over their opponents who were using much heavier, more brittle metal swords. The curved design of the scimitar as well, rather than just like a straight, flat, broad sword, means that you're able to inflict long, deeper cuts uh, than sort of the more stabby, brutal, thrusting movement of just a regular broadsword. So yeah, anyway, uh, with the Romans and the Persians out of the way, Albania, Armenia... Azerbaijan kind of left just sitting there for the taking. So Albania's ruler, this is a guy called Javanshir, he saw the writing on the wall. <laughs> He's like, well, we've got no one to defend Welcome, us here. friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what he does. And he makes these huge efforts to become friends with the caliphate. He meets with the caliphate himself twice. He travels out to see him twice. And he gets on so well with him that he's actually able to successfully negotiate terms. What he's able to negotiate is internal independence for Albania, which is good going. About the best he could have hoped for, really. <laughs> exactly. Reduce taxes by one third for everyone in Albania. And also a pet elephant. <laughs> That's a sweet in the deal. I like that. Just toss it. I'll tell you what, I'll toss Can in I an also elephant. Have an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> and so the Umiad take over the entire area, and that's that's pretty much it. And as rulers they're not bad, right? They're, they're not ruling with an iron fist, put it that way. They choose not to sort of disrupt daily life, civil administration, the crafts, the trades, the industries, agriculture, all elephant of that. Care. Elephant care, yeah. All of that's kind of just maintained. Even conversion to Islam is allowed to develop over time. They don't enforce it. It, oh, really? it happens naturally. But anyway, time passes. It's now 643. Okay, we are heading towards the 700s. I will get <laughs> yeah. there. This is all important and would make no sense, uh, the 700s, if, unless I tell you this bit. The Umayyad have now conquered every bit of land that they can in this area, up to that line of solid rock that forms the Caucasus Mountains. They want to go north and conquest beyond that, but the Caliph is sort of faced with this literal stone wall, right? It's 6,000 metres high in some places. You know, Mount Elbrus is 5,900 and something meters high and 750 miles long. That's 1,200 kilometers long. So it's a bit of a problem. Right? How are you going to get over that mountain with a whole army? So it's a problem. But also, what do they do once they get to the other side? Who are they going to meet? Well, you're going to be in the East European steppes at that point, which is modern day Georgia and Russia. 
So who's living there? Well, this is a land that is ruled by the Khazar Khanate. This is a collection of semi-nomadic people from Central, East, North, and West Asia. They are multi-ethnic, they are multilingual, and they are multi-religious. The Khazar are described as physically looking light-skinned, red-haired, and blue-eyed. So they're Scottish. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Uh, And they are ferocious fighters. Uh, They are known... Scottish. (laughs) (laughs) Known for their bow-wielding cavalry. Their heavy cavalry, in particular, is well-armoured. They wear chainmail and lamella. Instead of chainmail, it's like little square rectangles of metal that are sort of stitched on in place. And they would have like a spherical or a conical helmet on their heads. I prefer the idea of a conical helmet than riding around like... With a ball on your head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, the horses, they also carry plate armour as well, especially across their chest. And the horses also, for a first in the region, had metal stirrups. Oh, right. The Khazar foot soldiers, they also wore metal armour and they fought using these heavy metal weapons. You're talking sabres and axes, battle knives, and and also the one-handed flail, Ooh. which sounds cool. And y- you'll recognise it you might not recognize the name but you'll you'll definitely know what it looks like it's a classic sort of medieval weapon it's that uh, wooden handle with a chain on it and at the end a ball oh. that's either like round or spiked. Oh, yeah the sort of fatal swing ball fatal swing ball <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's derived from a peasant's threshing tool for like whipping the the wheat, I guess, uh, you know, during a harvest, and you whip it through the air at, at enemies. You know, you sort of lash it out at them. I suspect if I were issued a flail when sent into battle, I would clonk myself more often than I clonked them. <laughs> there is an argument for that. Some people say that the 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 one-handed flail is kind of an imaginary uh, instrument of war, that it was never actually used, that this is sort of a, a fiction that was brought to the public attention during the sort of 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Uh, but there is some evidence to suggest that, that the Khazars in particular in this region were using the flail. So an interesting one. So anyway, the Khazars were people who had quickly established like this significant commercial empire because of all of these interconnecting groups of people. And their reputation is huge. They are mighty. They are fearsome. So the Umayyad have reason to sort of think twice about one, getting through the mountains. uh, And then two, once you've got through the mountains, (laughs) then facing the Khazar army. It's a grueling intro to a battle, isn't it? First climb the mountain, then have the battle. (laughs) Then have a battle, exactly. But the Khalid. He's just recently recorded these amazing victories against the Byzantines and the Sassanids, and he really wants to keep conquesting. (laughs) (laughs) It's very Moorish, isn't it? Yeah. Just one another. another country. <laughs> <laughs> so he sends the Arabs to march through uh, Azerbaijan up to the mountains and down this narrow pass uh, at the very end of the range where the mountains are as low that it sort of meets the Caspian Sea. So right on the very edge of, of the range. Uh, so they sneak through there and they head north through a pass to a city called Durbant. Uh, now in Dagestan in Russia. And here they get ready and they prep for their offensive. Now, the Khazars get news of this impending attack, and they are not happy about these these Arabs being here at all. And so they meet them in battle, and they beat them majestically. And they kill the Arab commander, a guy called Abdul Rahman, and they send the rest retreating back south of the range. 
the caliph, understandably, is unhappy about this. And so he sends a message of intent by deploying an even larger army to Azerbaijan. And in 653, the Umayyad troops are gathered and they're ready to march back to Durban. They arrive, they set up camp, and they prepare for battle. The Khazars recognise that the Arabs are back, so they pick up their flails. (laughs) (laughs) Fetch my flail! They pick up their weapons and battle recommences. And the Khazars win again. Yeah, I can imagine that Second Army kind of going, so uh, I've heard we've done this before. How did it go last time? I don't know. I think it went well. I don't know. Well, they'll have learned their lesson. Surely we're in the Should we do it differently? No. Let's do the same thing again. (laughs) So the Khazars win and they kill the new Arab commander. Yeah, he must have been ready for that. Yep. (laughs) I understand. Yeah, I got get it. this. <laughs> Death by flail. And so, once again, the defeated Umayyad army retreats south back into Azerbaijan. And on the way, they're like, you know what, let's make some more treaties as we go. So they head into all of these different Azerbaijani cities, uh, Bada and Nakhchivan and uh, Beyalagan and Durban. And they're all forced to agree to new terms with the Arabs. Can't help but feel like this is just letting everybody know you're still in charge. Consolation gold stuff, isn't it? (laughs) Exactly, yeah. And so what they get people to agree to is compliance, number one, just to the um, you you will comply with us. Okay. Fine. (laughs) I comply. And two is to pay taxes. And these are called the jizye. This is a tax on basically non-Muslim subjects. If you're not Muslim, you've got to pay extra tax. In exchange, the Arabs agree not to interfere in any of their religious or domestic affairs. So these people are just like, well, I guess, fine. And to be fair, the Umayyad are pretty generous about it. They say uh, that if you want to leave the country, you can. You'll be allowed to leave. They also say that women, children, the poor and the sick are exempt from paying this tax. And they also say that there's no taxes for anyone who agrees to volunteer to join the Umayyad army. Given there's a few vacancies. (laughs) Yeah. Now hiring. Hello, can I help you? Assalamu alaikum. Yep, right back at you. Sir, I am from the Umayyad Central Tax Office. Uh, I just want to talk to you about your self-assessment form. Oh, right. Yes, just checking up on a few details. Okay. You've said here in section 7, subsection 3, that you claim exemption from the jizya tax and you've entered as a reason for your exemption. I am a Muslim. Go Islam. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. Go Islam. So, obviously, with there being no taxes due, we are just undertaking due diligence to establish if you truly are Muslim, which, of course, you are. Of course, I am. Yep, yep, fire away. Question one. Which of the following is not a pillar of Islam? The Salat, Hajj, the Shahadah, and the Shawadi Wadi? Well, well, obviously, the, uh, Wadi Wadi? Fine. Question two. What is the name of the holiest shrine located in Mecca? Oh, I know this one. The Kaaba. The Kaaba? Yeah, that. Before question three, may I interest you in a bottle of beer? Ooh. ooh, uh, Oh, no, 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 I see. No, because we don't drink alcohol, right? Yes. Final question. What do we call the collection of traditions and sayings of Muhammad? Ah, I knew this would come up. The Hadith. Ha! Nailed it! I mean, you've answered all the questions successfully and have therefore qualified for your tax exemption, meaning no charges are due. Yeah! Woohoo! Go Islam! Just one last formality then. May I just ask what your nature of business is? Oh, yeah, no problem at all. Uh, I'm a pig farmer.
<laughs> so yeah, so everyone agrees and all is going well. So the Umayyad just sort of leave Azerbaijan to it. But the Azeri population almost instantly just rebels. They're just like, ah, nah, they've gone now. We're not going to do any of this. They refuse to pay their taxes and are just generally being difficult. And so the Umayyad troops return. It's us again. <laughs> yeah. And that resistance is broken pretty swiftly. Uh, new contracts are now forced These on guys the are new Khazars, are they? <laughs> no, they are not. And yeah, uh, new contracts are formed with the people with even higher taxes than before. That's what you get. That's the risk, right? You roll the dice. So let's quickly talk about those taxes. Prior to the Umayyad Empire, the Azeri were using Byzantine or Persian gold currencies. But the Arabs had abolished that as part of their policy to sort of unify these various regions together under Islamic rule. And so the Caliph introduced the financial coinage system, with the first Umayyad gold coins being minted in around 691 CE, so just before 700. And their new currency is the first coin to carry an Arabic inscription and was called the dinar. Similar in size and weight to the Byzantine Solidus coin, and it even carried similarities to the imagery that was on the Byzantine coin as well. So on the front is an image of three standing figures. So there's images of people on the on Islamic the coin. That's unusual, isn't it? Because I thought it but generally uh, frowned upon the depiction of human forms in correct. general. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get to that. Okay. And on the reverse, the Byzantine coin showed a cross and the Umayyads showed a column placed on three steps topped with a sphere. In the margin surrounding the design is the Testimony of Islam, uh, which is written in Arabic. And it says, in the name of God, there is no deity but God. He is one. Muhammad is the messenger of God. So, with support from Azerbaijan's sort of bustling relationship with traders on the Silk Road, the dinar quickly establishes itself as sort of the major coin of the age. So, the Byzantine emperor, the Roman emperor, Justinian II, he is not happy about this new coin, uh, the, the dinar at all. And he responds by minting a new solidus with the head of Christ on the front and an image of himself, robed and holding a cross on the back. <laughs> Look Thumbs <at> up. Me. <laughs> Just... <laughs> yeah, and as if to taunt Justinian, the caliph, Abd al-Malik orders a new coin to be minted which shows an image on its front of an upright figure of the caliph <laughs> wearing an Arab headdress and holding a sword. <laughs> Justinian, angered by this, responds by minting another new coin. Is this the equivalent of sort of coin wars? Emperor equivalent of distracts. <laughs> it's exactly what it is. Beef between the Byzantine and the Caliph. <laughs> so he responds by minting another new coin, and this time almost just a complete clone of the Arab one. So Caliph Abd al-Malik is hugely displeased with this. He sees this as a... Um, I don't know why he sees this as an insult, <laughs> given he's just done pretty much the same thing, but he responds and mints another new coin. Oh, he's savage. <laughs> savage. Right. But this time he abandons all traces of iconography on it, so there's no figures on it at all, and he introduces this first coin which just has inscribed verses from the Quran on it, expressing the message of Islam and making each piece an individual missionary of the faith. Ah. Not only that, but after he introduces the coin, Abd al-Malik issues a decree, and that decree says that it is to be the only currency to be used in Umayyad lands, and all Byzantine coins are to be handed into the treasury, melted down, and restruck as dinars and dirhams. If you don't comply, you face the death penalty. Ooh, crumbs. That's a lot for not turning in your old pound note. So <laughs> turn in your turn in your solidus. Solidi? 
Anyway, so within a decade, literally within 10 years of their introduction, in the early 700s, gold, silver, and copper dinar and dirham coins had replaced all Sassanian and Byzantine coins across the entire empire. Uh, You lost the coin wars. They definitely lost the coin wars. And this is basically a financial reform that starts that century and continues from there. It proves to be one of the major achievements of the Umayyad dynasty is doing it so quickly and so effectively. It's funny to think. You always think of empire achievements as invading here or conquering that. But not coin wars. Making a load of coins and distributing them and making a universal currency is is huge, isn't it? Propaganda, right, as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having an image of yourself, like you say, with a big sword and look how <laughs> powerful and strong I am. Absolutely. You get it in everyone's pocket. My emperor. Yeah? News from the east. Right. A new dinar has been struck by order of the caliph. Oh, bloody hell. Another one? Yes, my emperor. <sighs> Probably a response to the last Solidus we put out. You remember me looking all buff, holding that cross? <laughs> Savage. Quite so, my emperor. A sick burn indeed. Yeah. Okay, well, look, what's on their coin this time? Well, it is a depiction of the caliph, sir, and he is gesturing. Gesturing? What, like, religiously? Not very religiously, no, sir. There is a single raised digit, sir. Oh, like a thumbs up? A middle finger, sir. Oh, well, look, that could be to anyone. It is encircled by text, sir. Is it? Yes, sir. It reads, hey, Justinian, screw us, you us. Anything else? On the reverse side, sir, a likeness of yourself. Oh, well, that's nice. With a poo for a hat, sir. Okay, all right, get me the mint. We're going to be working late tonight. Side note, according to the Quran, there is a commandment which says, when you measure, give an exact measure and weigh with an accurate scale. So the caliphs saw it as their responsibility uh, to ensure that the purity and the weight of their coins had to weigh exactly 4.24 grams. At the mint, where they make these coins, they used a method of coin production called dye sinking, which is still still done, but the first job was to analyse the metal, be it obsolete coins or just raw ore. You'd have somebody who would do that to just examine the metal and just check, check that it's pure. Then somebody would heat the metal and they would refine it to conform to their established standards for the alloy to make sure it's got the right, exactly the right combination of metals within it. Then there's somebody who would do the smelting and casting, so melting it down and put into ingots those big blocks, you know, Mm -hmm. like a gold bar. And those metal blocks were then rolled out and then they're cut into discs. Like cookies. Exactly. And each disc is then placed between a front and a reverse side mould, known as a die. Then that die would be struck. Somebody would hit it with a mallet a couple of times and the impact of that mallet pushes down on the metal and imprints the design on both sides of the coin at the same time. The dies, they're usually made of bronze and uh, they'd be used maybe several thousands of times before they would have to be replaced. It's amazing the, the, the production level that goes into this. Anyway, we're now into the 700s. Hurrah! Yeah, and the Azeri are living under the rule of the Umayyad Empire. Things are ticking over. Until 20 years later, we're in 722, and the Umayyad governor in charge of Azerbaijan, an Arab warlord called Al-Jarrah ibn Abdullah, he sets off with his army across the Caucasus Mountains on a mission to kick some Khazar butt. Yeah, I hope he read his history before he did this, but all right, go on. Well, it's third time lucky, right? <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> so Al-Jarrah reaches the Khazar city of Balanjar and finds it surrounded by a barricade of over 3,000 wagons. Wow. It's a lot of wagons. So Al-Jarrah scoffs. 
And so he brings out his siege weapons, Ooh. catapults and such. Right. Uh, yeah, and he blasts these wagons to bits and the army moves smoothly inside Balanjar and Algerar and his men slaughter most of the inhabitants of the city. They loot the place and they return home entirely victorious. <laughs> That's actually very good. <laughs> so eight years later, it's 730. And son of the Khazar Kargan, Bajik, uh, he decides he's going to go and head south and he wants to get himself some payback. Uh, now, we don't know much about Bajik, by the way. He may or may not actually have been the prince, but that seems to be the consensus was that he was. So we're just going to consider him the prince. Uh, but we do know that he was a merciless warlord. And we know this because he ordered his cavalry to slay any Muslim that they came across, regardless male, female, child or not. Wow. And so they set out, him and his men, into the mountains, heading south to Azerbaijan. Uh, meanwhile, at the same time, buoyed from his previous victory, Al-Jarrah is back and he's planning <laughs> to attack Khazaria again. And at this moment is creeping north through <laughs> the mountains. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> making for the Khazar capital city of Al-Baida. So Bajik and Al-Jarrah slip past each other unseen. Bajik marches into Azerbaijan and stops at the southern city of Ardabil. It's a city of around about 50,000 people just on in modern day Iran. Bajik and his men attack the city, and the city is occupied with ease, right? Because oh, there's no one there. Algernon's gone. <laughs> exactly. This is surprisingly easy. <laughs> North of the mountains, Algerar learns of Bajik's invasion and capture of Ardabil. So, just having got to the the capital city himself, he about turns, oh, wow. and marches his men back down south. I thought going over the mountains once was poor preparation for a battle, but going over and back again—that's really again. showing off. And they hot step it all the way back um, to Ardabil's rescue. And they arrive December 730. And with his army of 25,000, al demands <laughs> that Bajik and his men leave the city of Ardabil immediately. Bajik says no. And on the 7th of December, both armies head out onto the plains surrounding the city and they fight. The battle lasts for three days. Oh. Okay, by the third day, the Umayyad auxiliary troops give up and just abandon the, the field. They just leave. And that leaves Al-Jarrah and his Arab army basically entirely overwhelmed by the Khazars. And so at some point on that final day, Al-Jarrah is killed and the battle is declared over. The Khazars are victorious. So in the end, 20,000 of the 25,000 lie dead on the battlefield. Wow. Super happy with his win. Bajik roots through all these corpses. He finds al Jarrah's body. He decapitates it and mounts the Arab leader's head on his horse-drawn throne. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is the stuff of a fantasy movie, isn't it? This is great. Isn't it? Right? So he's decorated his horse-drawn <laughs> throne with the head of the enemy. So, sitting on his gruesome throne, Bajik returns to Ardabil, and for the next year or so, uh, his men sort of scatter off around Azerbaijan, looting and plundering without recourse. No one's there to stop him. Until, eventually, Bajik kind of gets bored, right? And he decides that he's going to chance his luck again. So, it's 731, year later, Bajik and his men head south into Iran and into Umayyad territory. He arrives in the city of Mosul, and he finds himself facing a small Arab fighting force under the leadership of another Umayyad general called Said ibn Amir al-Harashi. 
Okay, Al-Harashi had only just been given the job by the caliph to lead the army. And the, the caliph has been pretty terrified at this point because Bajik is on his way. They do keep winning, don't they? They do keep winning and they mount heads on <laughs> horse-drawn <laughs> <Mobile> thrones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the caliph gives Al-Harashi two things. He gives him a religious artifact. He gives him this lance, you know, like you would carry on a horse, uh, said to have been used in the famous Muslim battle of Badir. And he gives him 100,000 silver dirhams to go and recruit more men for the army. Now, this did buy a few men, but a lot of it was used up convincing survivors from Ardabil to fight. Uh, in the end, he had to pay them each 10 gold dinars, <laughs> which pretty much just yomped through the entire budget that he had. I can imagine after three days of fighting and seeing almost everyone that you know die, getting them to come back to the battlefield might be a bit strong. Four out of five of my friends had been killed. You've got to get at least 10 gold coins, if not more. If not more. So Al-Harashi doesn't have enough men, but still he feels confident. He's got the lance. He's got the lance, yeah. Uh, and he stands opposite Bajik's 10,000 strong Khazir army, all of them yelling and screaming, calling for his head. And he's kind of okay. He's like, I, I've got this. This is fine. I got this. This is in the bag. And one of the major reasons for Al-Harashi's confidence is because of Al-Jarrah's death, because the desecration of his body had caused such a huge amount of mourning across the Muslim world, particularly among soldiers, such that basically, you know, he was seen as like the hero of Islam. And in fact, there's this tales of Al-Jarrah's prowess had kind of become legendary in the year since his death. The stories were being told about him that he was basically so impressive in his physical presence that when he entered the great mosque of Damascus, his head seemed to be suspended from the lamps. Uh, which I looked it up and is impressive because the height of the mosque is 36 metres or 118 <laughs> he was a tall feet. tall fellow. He was a 35 <laughs> metre tall man. <laughs> he was a giant. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so Al-Harashi figures that his, you know, the few soldiers that he does have, they're going to fight with the strength of much more men. And they did. Bajik is defeated, and most of the Khazars are killed. Al-Harashi rescues the city of Ardabil. He releases those that had been held prisoner. And Bajik, just having managed to survive, grabs what few remaining Khazars are left. And his head. He rushes out of Mosul, leaving his throne behind, presumably, back through Azerbaijan, across the mountains, and back home to safety. Now, for this tremendous and frankly unlikely victory, <laughs> Al-Harashi is relieved of his command and imprisoned. Oh, <laughs> unexpected turn of events. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure he thought that too. Uh, we think this is likely as the result of the jealousy of the caliph who wanted to ensure that he oh, wasn't somehow... That's a also... Game of Thrones twist, if ever there was one. <laughs> yeah. So he's in prison for two years. Uh, 733, he's released and made governor of Armenia and Azerbaijan. But two years later, he's forced to resign due to the loss of his eyesight. Wow. That's the end of Al-Harashi. That was a roller coaster of a life, wasn't it? Hi, I'm the Crazy Caliph. Come on down to Crazy Caliph Throne Lot. You gotta see these thrones. We got thrones like this one cedar golden regalizer. Get yourself one. Take it home, and your vassals are gonna love it. Bring everyone you know and come on down and see my wife, too. She'll be cooking a pot of beans. And she'd love to serve some for you. So come on down and we'll get you straight. We got thrones. We got anything you like to get your royal behind in. I can tell you that right now. 
getting yourself between these arms. It's like sitting on a cloud. Yeah. I've sat in them all myself, and my behind has never been happier. So come on down. I'm Crazy Caliph. Get you a throne. Hold on, folks. We ain't done yet. We got a special offer for you today. A free pot of beans. Beans. Get off that three-legged stool. Come swap that splintered bench for a brand new sporty throne. I got so many thrones down here, I don't know what to do with them. Expensive chairs, crazy sporty little wooden pews. We got thrones, silver thrones, golden thrones. We got this throne with spikes for the decapitated heads of your vanquished foes. And it's on wheels. So come on down to Crazy Caleb. People say I might be full of beans. They might be right, but I know the best price in town. So come on down to Crazy Caleb's. We got beans. And so seven years pass. Events are not forgotten. Uh, in 738, Arab armies rush out of Azerbaijan again, pour across the Caucasus range. There they meet the Khazar army. And this is a well-trodden route at this point, isn't it? <laughs> they sort of know it, yeah. And this is an incredibly brutal clash. It's so violent that there is one account that one entire Khazar village is surrounded uh, by the Umayyad troops and they commit collective suicide by fire rather than give themselves over and surrender to the enemy. Oh Lord. So the Umayyad win that battle. So they're doing one now. The, the tide has turned. Right. Uh, yeah. And they now occupy Khazaria. They've done it. And also at this time, they, they force the Kargan to convert to Islam. But unfortunately, the Umayyad regime is really kind of under the cosh across the empire. And so they just don't have the strength in numbers to continue their presence in Khazaria. So unfortunately, they have to withdraw. Wow, is that the time? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got to go, guys. Um, and they've only been there a very short window of occupation. So the Umayyad leave and the Khazars kind of just pretend like it never happened. It's really <laughs> interesting. I spent some time looking at this and I can't quite work out what happened, but let me tell you what did happen. So the Khazars elect a female ruler for the first time ever, and they suddenly adopt Judaism. <sighs> what's that? Some sort of, what's the opposite of Islam? <laughs> Judaism, Judaism, let's do that. Let's do that. Yeah. And so that's it. And they also stop attacking the Arabs. I, I, something happened at that point where that, that was, the, I guess that defeat was so much that they just were thrown by it, didn't know what to do with themselves. Anyway, so in 758, there is a regime change and the Umayyad Empire um, has sort of expanded past the point of comfort. Uh, there is unrest among uh, the people. There is major opposition from enemies all over the empire. And it's got to the point now where the Abbasids, uh, a rival clan to the Umayyads, see an opportunity to rise to power. Power. And so the Abbasids dynasty, they take control and they form the next caliphate. Still keen on conquesting, the new caliph decides that diplomacy is going to be the way forward. And this is an, an, a different iteration of a still Islamic empire. Absolutely. It's just the, the new leaders. Right. They've just swapped over to a new leader, but it's run by a different clan, a different group, a different family. And so uh, to make peace, the new Abbasid caliph, he orders one of his Azeri nobles to take a royal Khazar bride. Makes sense. So we're going to do it that way. So the noble follows the order and he marries a Khazar princess, brings her back to Azerbaijan. 10,000 soldiers go, 
what you could have just done that (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately she dies very unexpectedly almost immediately perhaps it's suggested during childbirth unfortunately for the caliph the princess's attendants who had come with her to azerbaijan they rush back to kazaria they go to the the kargan the king and they go we think she was poisoned thanks guys that's uh not a happy marriage that's not a happy marriage so absolutely enraged the Kargan sends his best general to go and invade Abbasid territory. So they head south through the Caucasus <laughs> Mountains. Yeah. Still got the maps? Yes. <laughs> Grab your flails. <laughs> they go and they plunder and they raid Azerbaijan for many, many long months without any recourse. The Caliph says, just let them do their thing. And that's what they do. Basically, they get tired and they just go home. Having they plundered, plundered themselves out. <laughs> <laughs> That's remarkable. Then we can imagine them at the end going, who'd have thought you'd have had enough plunder? Yeah, I'm tired of it. I just want to go home. <laughs> so the, one last village? No, I just can't. I just, I'm just done. done. <laughs> <laughs> After which relations become pretty chill. It all just chills out <laughs> after that. And the Caliphate and the Khazars kind of just have like this easy relationship with each other. And that's kind of it. That's that's the end of that, the 700. So, you know, I've kind of stopped there. But... I would be remiss to finish without talking a little bit about both the fighting that we've discussed and tying that to metal. Well, I think it's been a very clear clash of metal, hasn't it? So uh, it I've been quite do. happy with the metal element, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. But I will take bonus but metal. But just in case, <laughs> always end with a song. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I was pleased to discover that in 2013, the Azerbaijan military released a bizarre heavy metal music video, <laughs> which showed off their weapons of war. Uh, it has explosions and it also has... Desperately want to see this. This amazing guitar. <laughs> guitar shredding tune all right <laughs> it's called fire uh, and it's performed by a group of local heavy metal rockers led by Sehan Zenalov and Narmin Karim Beova <laughs> So there you go. That was that was it. That was Metalf in Azerbaijan during the 8th century. Well, I thought you really brought that home. You had to kind of root around. But these big tales of empires and nations, you, know, you have to bring the context. You can't just go, there's this one country and then some people showed up out of the blue. You have to tell us where they came from. Uh, that was a fascinating tale of the sort of back and forth, particularly between the Khazars and the Umayyad. And I just have this idea of there's like one or two veterans who've been at all of the previous wars. <laughs> oh, here we go. That'd be me and you at the back, <laughs> like, oh, I can't believe they're still doing this. <laughs> Why are we fighting again? And then at the end, they could have just married a princess. That was... <laughs> I feel very short-changed by this. For ten dinars, ten dinars as well. Yeah. We'll just let them plunder for six months. Plunder it out, be done with it. Oh, dear. No, I thought you did very well there, Ryan. I thank you for an educational experience. Thanks, man.
Okay, well, then I guess you know what that means. It's time to wheel out the Dursalator. <laughs> I've brushed off all the confetti and the <laughs> champagne glass stains. Party hats. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so there we go. So it's ready to go. All right, Peter. Pull the lever. Here we go. Your country is... I'm ready. Uzbekistan. Oh, I feel like we've brushed up against that just now, but uh, <laughs> yeah. okay, Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan. Okay, and your time period is... It is the first phone to the iPhone. Oh. It's 1876 to 2007. Oh, well, okay. Well, that's going to be a different story then. You're not going to have any uh, Umayyads or... I, uh, unlikely. Kazars <laughs> coming onto this one, I don't think. <laughs> okay, well then let's have a look at your topic, and your topic is... Smell. Smell. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's something, isn't it? Smell in Uzbekistan <laughs> during 1876 <laughs> to 2007. Well, I can't say anything leaps to mind, but uh, I'm sure something can be found. <laughs> I look forward to smelling it. I look forward to describing the smells at the very least. I'll maybe see what I can do in terms of bringing some concoctions. Mmm, the smell of a crude oil bath. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Well, that is excellent stuff, Ryan. Once again, thank you so much. I really enjoyed uh, your metal in Azerbaijan. But that is, unfortunately, our show for this week. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show or just say hello, you can reach out to us on our social media. You can come through the website, hhepodcast.com, or you can email us at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. Yeah, we'd really love to hear from you. And uh, you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. Definitely feature on a future episode if you rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we ask you to do this because recommendations on Apple Podcasts particularly help spread us to a wider audience. And I know you want to spread us to an audience. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every time we post one of our little one minute animated HHE Bites. Well worth one minute of your time. Absolutely. We'll be back again soon with The Verdict. That's our after show podcast where we talk about some of the things that we've thrown up in this episode episode but in the meantime if you can't get enough of the show check out the back catalogue which you can find in your podcast app youtube or the website once again that's hhepodcast.com all right so a huge thanks to ryan again awesome episode uh, thanks to you peter and that's it i think all that's left to say is you've been listening to history happened everywhere Crazy Hubbard Whitfield. Come on down to Crazy Hubbard's used car lot. We've got prices slashing down from 2004s to 1989 models. Come on down here. You gotta see these cars. We got Chevys. We got Fords. We got Daewoo. We got trucks like this nice Nissan Titan right here. Get yourself in one. Drive it home. Your wife's gonna love it. Bring everybody you know and come on out here. Ask for my wife too. She's cooking a pot of beans and she'll love to serve some to you. So come on down and we'll get you straight. We got Jeeps. We got anything you'd like to get your behind in, I'll tell you right now. Get yourself behind one of these steering wheels. She drives like a dream. I drove them all myself. Now come on down. Crazy hubs. Get you a car.
Hold on, folks. We're not done yet. We got a special offer for you today. If you get down here, I will give you a basket and you can go out with my personal bean patch and fill that basket up with beans you can take home with you tonight. We got Mazdas. We got Suzuki. Beans. Get off that couch you're sitting on and drive yourself on down over here in that crazy bucket of bolts you've been driving. And come on over here, we'll get you in a brand new Kia Sportage today. I got so many cars here, I don't know what to do with them. That's why we're slashing prices left and right. Here at Crazy Hubs, cars, trucks, and crazy little sporty motorbikes. We got vans. We got red Nissans. We got white Nissans. So come on down to Crazy Hubs, right behind my house. But down by Tankard's Nursery, take a left by I-64. People say I'm full of beans. Beans? They may be right, but I'm no best price in town, come on down to Crazy Hubs. We got beans! 